Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. All right, if you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 this morning, and I want to talk to you this morning about water, right? Water. It's interesting we celebrated baptism just a few minutes ago, but I travel quite a bit, and I travel north because that's the place to go. Um, That's where I grew up, and so last week I was in New Hampshire and uh, Massachusetts visiting some people and doing some trips, and one of my favorite things to do, that sounds really weird, is to go across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. It's absolutely unbelievable. I don't know if you've ever done it in a storm at night when the wind is blowing. It is absolute, like, chaos. I've driven and I've seen on the other side of the road, like, where the truck fell in a few years ago. I don't know if you remember that story. And this is like, but then you go other times. I came home and one time just recently I took pictures with my phone, and that's terrible. You're trying to take pictures, but I should just stop. But my mindset is get home, just go. Stopping is evil. Don't go to the bathroom, just go. So I'm trying to take pictures of just the beautiful sunset. And it's like, how can something so amazing and so beautiful all at the same time, just in a different time of day, be the most scary, dark thing there is. And we live with a world where water is what? H2O. We know how many hydrogen and oxygen molecules there are that make up a drop of water. However, in the ancient world, they didn't have all of the chemistry and all the atomic mass and all these things with this. They didn't think of water in a scientific, physical thing. They thought of water in a very symbolic way. And we saw a few years ago, I actually looked it up in Matthew chapter 8. This was actually 2022 that we did Matthew chapter 8. And we talked about the time when Jesus was sleeping in the boat and all the disciples are freaking out. And Jesus wakes up and says what? Well, this is my favorite part. This is, this is the Scott translation. Calm down. How many of you, like, in your franticness, like to be told to calm down? And Jesus is like, calm down. Relax. Take a chill pill. Because then he speaks to the waters, and what it happens? Absolute peace. And it says at that point, they said... What kind of man has authority over the water? Now we're coming a few chapters later in chapter 14. Uh, Nate did a tremendous job last week of walking through the feeding of the the 5,000 people. And now Jesus, in Matthew chapter 14, is going to send his disciples away. He's going to go up to a mountain and pray. There's so many aspects we could deal with this this morning, and I'm just kind of telling you what happened. Jesus went off to a mountain. He sent the disciples away in a boat. 
And in the middle of the night, a storm comes up. And the disciples are on the boat in the middle of the night in a massive storm. They're freaking out. And guess what? There's no Jesus in the boat this time. And so what ends up happening? Well, if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to read the beginning of this story. You probably know the ending, but I'm not going to read through the entire thing. But Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get in the boat, go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up onto a mountainside to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from lands buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Father, I pray that you will help us this morning to see Jesus defeating the chaos. Help us see Jesus defeating the monster, the dragon. And as we keep our eyes on him, we actually also conquer. So we ask this for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible regularly uses metaphors to communicate with us. Oftentimes, we don't like the Bible because we just like give us the literal like meaning. Stop beating around the bush. Stop trying to paint a picture. This is me. Maybe you're more like, like that flowery language, but I'm more like direct. Okay? Don't, don't, I don't need all this imagery. I don't like metaphors very often. But the Bible speaks regularly through metaphor. This is how the ancient world understood and communicated was through word pictures, through similes, through metaphors. And one of the primary metaphors that the Bible communicates with is the image of water. In fact, the Bible begins with water. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and without void. Uh, one translator translates this, the earth was wild and waste. And there was the abysmal deep, the waters. And what ended up happening is, this is kind of an introduction to the whole Genesis 1, is that the waters, the land emerged up out of the waters, and yet the waters are still there. And over the waters is hovering the Spirit of God. Why is that so significant? All of Israel's neighbors, whether it be the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, they all had their own version of their deities doing battle with the waters. It wasn't Israel was just like, Moses like, oh, look, there's water. Let me say about the water. No, the waters took on a metaphorical reality. They took on the idea of what we're going to come to see as a chaos dragon, a chaos monster, that the waters were pictured as this chaotic force that needed to be wrestled, that needed to be dealt with. And this wasn't just Israel. I mean, you think of, I mean, I'm going to go a little bit ancient history for you, but the Babylonian myth, their primary god was a god named Marduk. And he was doing battle against the chaos monster of the sea called Tiamat. And what ended up happening, and you can read through this long narrative of what happened, but at the end of the story, Marduk cuts open Tiamat, the chaos dragon, in half, and out of that half comes the heavens and the earth, and this is how the earth was created, based on a Babylonian myth. 
But what you come to see is that all of Israel's neighbors dealt with the waters being this force that had to be dealt with. It was personified in the form of like this dragon, in the form of this monster. And what you get in Genesis 1 is interesting. Do you get monsters in Genesis chapter 1? You may not know this, but in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, it says, So God created the great, and the Hebrew word is tanin. And when you study this word tanin throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it is used of dragons and monsters. This says that God created the great sea dragons. That changes it, right? Probably most of us thought the giant creatures were like the, the whale shark and the great white shark and Shamu and, no, the great sea creatures. God actually rejoiced and created and called them good. And are there waters in Genesis 1? Yes, the land has to emerge out of the water. Man can't live in the water. We need lands. But what's interesting is that there's no battle. God is not like in a war with the waters. He's not in a war with the chaos dragon. He's not in a war with anything. He is just ruling over it, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The same word in Job chapter 7 of Tanin, it says this, Am I the sea or the monster of the deep? You ever heard the phrase, the Greek or the Hebrew term, Leviathan? Okay, like... We all try to figure out what the Leviathan is. Like, is it a dinosaur? Is it a crocodile? Crocodiles never stop growing. So in a perfect world, would this grow to be 7,000 feet tall and all these crazy things? The Leviathan was just a mythical creature that they believed lived out in the sea that needed to be tamed. Or in Psalm chapter 74, says this, but God is my king. From long ago, he brings salvation on the earth, it was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the water. That's the same word, tanin, that's used in Genesis chapter 1 that God created. See, the waters in Genesis chapter 1 are viewed as an opposition, not wrong, not evil yet, but just viewed as opposition to human flourishing, human survival. And so out of the waters emerge lands. Do you ever remember that story of Noah? Out of the waters emerge what? Lands. This is a regular motif that God uses to demonstrate his creation and authority over the world, that he is defeating the waters so that land can emerge. Yet Noah is not the only person to pass through chaotic waters in a dry lands. If you know the story of Israel, they are people who walk through chaotic waters into lands. In Exodus chapter 15, I'm not going to read the entire thing to you, but the, it's a song that they wrote about their coming out of Egypt and being delivered. In Exodus chapter 15, Moses writes, it's actually Moses' sister who wrote the song, says, the Lord is a warrior. Yahweh, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he is hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them, and they sank to the depths like a stone. And so what you kind of see right there in Exodus chapter 15 is that, yes, the, the enemies of God are Pharaoh and his enemies and his army. And, the, and God uses the water to destroy them. But what I want you to see is it's not just that Pharaoh's army is a danger and a threat to Israel, but what is also a danger and a threat to Israel is the actual water. 
In Exodus chapter 15, it says this, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. I don't know if you can see it very well, uh, but in, this is poetry, okay? And how Hebrew poetry works is they'll say one line, and then they'll say the same exact thing in the sep- second line, but with different way of saying it. We call that parallelism. It's two lines saying the same thing in two different ways. And what is he saying? If you notice, the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries, which was the number, enemy number one, is or Egypt. Then number two, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Why am I telling you this? That the water in Exodus chapter 15 when they came through was also in opposition and an enemy to Israel. And so Israel had this understanding that the waters are like evil and dark and not a place we want to be. There's like monsters there. And we're going to come to see that's actually where the demons lived. One more example. Because we could do a whole study on water. But in Psalm chapter 89, the psalmist writes this, Who is like you, O Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the raging sea. When its waves mount up, you do what? You still them. Who stills them in Psalm 89? Yahweh. Remember that. You crushed Rahab. Wait, Rahab? Isn't she the harlot who Jesus or Israel saved? That's a different Hebrew word. And Rahab here is a term through, used probably about six times in the Old Testament. It's a name used for the chaos monster in ancient stories. That's referred to several times in the Hebrew Scriptures, in Psalm 87, Isaiah 30, all these places, but it's a, a name used of a chaos ancient monster, like a mythical creature that all the other nations surrounded. And what they're saying is that God, Yahweh, who took that Rahab monster of the sea and tamed it and has authority over it. Marduk doesn't. The Canaanite deities, Baal doesn't. Yahweh is the one who actually tames and has authority over the chaos monster. And so God raises, sorry, God, in a sense, uses his power against the raging sea to demonstrate his authority. And why this is so significant is because the chaos waters were pictured as a deep mythological evil that comes to be personified as a dragon or a sea monster. And this is the understanding that Jesus and Peter and James and John had about water. We have to understand that context. Because now, we come back to the story. And I think it's going to add a lot more to the story than what we normally see. It says that the disciples were considerably far from Jesus in the boat. Jesus had sent them across. It's almost like, remember when Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested? Jesus says, I'm sending you into the dark waters to be tested. They rode many stadia. It says they were probably about 25, we're not going to go into all the math. We're going to say they're three and a half miles from shore. The Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide. They're basically out in the middle of the lake. 
And then a storm comes up out of nowhere. And, and I mean, if you ever heard a, stu- a sermon on this particular passage, I'm not going to go into all the topography, but the, the Sea of Galilee is like the second lowest um, sea. I what am I trying to say? Second lowest sea level sea, freshwater lake in the world. And so there's all these mountains around it. And as the winds come over it, there's just a place for tumultuous storms that come up out of nowhere. And it says in the, in the Greek that the, the winds and the waves were actually torturing the boats. Uh, the NIV uses the word buffeted. I don't know why they use, anyone use the word buffet in the last couple weeks? You have? You're the only one that I know of. Okay, and I'm like, this is supposed to be the NIV. Like, I'm supposed to understand what's happening. The idea is that they were actually being tortured. The same word being tortured is used throughout the gospel of people being tortured by demons, which is adding to the chaos that now they're out in the boat, out in the waters, the dark waters where the chaos monsters are actually living and they think they exist there. And now they're being bombarded and tortured by the winds and the waves. There's a strong headwind against the boats, and huge waves threaten the lives of the disciples. I'm not going to make you do this, but I'm going to ask you to do this really weird thing. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to tell you a story. If you close your eyes and you picture yourself, I don't know if you've ever been out in the middle of a lake at night, but picture yourself on a small boat with a bunch of people here from Redemption Church. And all of a sudden, as you're crossing and doing a rowing, the winds begin to pick up. And they begin to grow, and the rain starts coming, and the waves are coming, and you're like going up and down in the sea, and you're bailing water, you're falling almost out of the boat. You don't know where you are. You're trying to get across the other side. You don't have any life preservers. It's dark. It's probably about five in the morning, so you're probably very tired of fighting this storm. Like they didn't leave until they're probably in the water for about seven hours. And then all of a sudden, in the darkness, you see someone walking on the water. Open your eyes. Like, this is a scary scene. I think sometimes we don't visualize the depth and the darkness and the horror and the freakish nature of what is happening out in the boats. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, as they're like trying to survive, they see someone walking on the water. And what do they think it is? I think it's a ghost. Why do they think it's a ghost? Here's why. We don't live in a very supernatural world. Okay? We're more like, I ain't afraid of no ghost. Like, we're, this is our mentality. Like, there's no such thing as ghosts, and I'm not afraid of them. But they live in a very supernatural world where the, the, the invisible world that we cannot see often came to be in the real world, and they saw it. And they thought a ghost was there. And this is crazy. We're like, there's no way the first thing we think is a ghost. But that is what they thought, that they were so afraid that all of a sudden a ghost was coming. The Greek here is they saw a phantasm. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, phantasm. 
But that's where we get our English word from, this Greek understanding of a ghost. And disciples are freaking out. And if I was freaking out already, then I saw the ghost, I might just jump overboard. Just kidding. I'll just keep fighting. The scene here is of the sea was the home of evil spirits. I mean, this is not just a Jewish conception. It's all the Hellenistic world of that time. Is that when someone drowned in the sea, do you know what they had to put in their mouth? A coin. Why? So they could pass, have money to pass through to the underworld. And so here now, out in the middle of the storm, out in the middle of this chaos, the chaotic waters, the freaking out, there's a ghost walking towards them, and they think this is the end. However, it's no ghost. It's Jesus. And Jesus says to his disciples once again, calm down. It's okay. But Jesus says, actually, in the, in the Greek, he says, be of good cheer. How would you like it? A ghost walks up to you in the middle of your darkest hour, your darkest night, you're about to die, and someone just says, hey, be of good cheer. You'd be like, what? Are you, what? And this is what Jesus says. He walks up to him and says, be of good cheer. What would you be thinking? See, Jesus has this unique ability to always be with us, but to really just show up when? At the very end. We're like, Jesus, I could have used you like six hours ago. And he's like, I was with you. I didn't leave you. But I wanted to test your faith. And, and then you can almost hear Peter talking out loud, thinking out loud, right? Like Peter's like, what in the world is happening? And you ever like, the joke is, did I say that out loud? This is what I think Peter did. He's like, Jesus, if that's you, let me come out to you. So what does Peter do? He walks out on the water. Can you imagine climbing out in the boat and in this chaos and waves, you just start walking? I mean, I'd be like... This is how I thought of this, okay? Roller coasters. I'm ready to tackle them. I'm ready to go. I believe that that's going to be a lot of fun. I get locked in, and then as soon as you start going up the hill and you hear what? Click, 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 click. I'm like, uh-oh. Why did I do this? And that's what I feel like what Peter did. He's like, I'm ready to go. I'm going to go see Jesus. I'm walking on the water. And he starts looking around. And he hears the waves. He hears the winds. And when he keeps his eyes on Jesus, he stays up. And when he begins to focus on the winds and the waves, he begins to sink. And Jesus graciously reaches out, grabs his hands. They get in the boat Jesus calms the storm, and what does he say to the disciples? Why are you doubting? What's your problem? Why are you not believing? Don't you understand what is happening? And I think we can understand a few things from this passage, but one of them is that faith and doubts go together. Faith and doubt go together. There's a lot of debate like, did Peter believe when he got out onto the boat or did he not believe yet? Peter had enough faith to actually ask Jesus to get out of the boat. How many of you are asking that? 
I'm probably not. But he had enough faith to actually ask that. So I think what you see in the story here is that Peter believed, but there came a point in that little succession where Peter stopped looking at Jesus and his faith began to waver. It's almost as if Mark chapter 9 is rehearsing this story where a man comes to Jesus and says, I believe, but help my what? Unbelief. See, faith and doubt go together. And even though Jesus criticizes his disciples for their lack of faith, what you come to see is that by the end of the story, what are they doing? They are worshiping him. That their faith has been restored in worship. And as we saw in our last series, Gospelization, every sin we commit is an act of unbelief. Every sin is first not believing in who Jesus is for us. And so we are Christians I want you to hear this rightly. You're an unbeliever. You don't fully believe in the good news of Jesus. Because if we did, we would never sin. And so we experience times of doubt. And we experience times of unbelief. Madeline Lengel, who, written, who wrote a, Ma- a Wrinkle in Time. I don't know if you ever saw that movie or wrote that book. She's actually a committed Christian. She wrote this. Those who believe... They believe, those who believe, they believe in God. But they don't have passion in their heart. They don't have anguish in their minds. If they don't have uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, they only believe in the idea of God and not in God himself. What is she saying? That if you really believe in God, you're going to experience times in your mind where there is anguish, where there is uncertainty, where there is doubt. Like, to be a Christian, to believe in something is actually to allow yourself to have a space of doubts. Faith is ultimately the courage to confidently affirm beliefs which can be doubted. I mean, many people really, really doubt the claims of Christianity in Jesus. But what faith is, is it's the courage to say that I'm going to believe these things even though some people don't. They can be doubted. The capacity to doubt, to question what seems obvious, is a necessary element in our effort to know reality as it is. But know this, that in your doubt, we call it derivative, it's secondary. I'm going to make a a logical statement here that will take a little bit to unpack. Rational doubt depends on faith. Rational faith does not depend on doubt. Let me repeat that. Rational faith depends on doubt. Faith, sorry, rational doubt depends on faith. Rational faith does not depend on doubt. What what does that sentence mean? It means this. You can only really doubt something if you really believe in something. If you don't really believe in something, you can't doubt it. What is the foundational bedrock? It is faith. It's belief in something which then allows you to actually sometimes doubt. And I think one of the lies of the chaos monster is that if you begin to doubt, God doesn't love you. You're not a good enough Christian. And what the chaos monster wants to lie to you and tell you over and over and over again is that you're not good enough. You don't believe enough. How in the world can I be a Christian for 30 years and now I'm still coming, questioning, doubting if Jesus is who he says he is? 
I remember a season, this was when, there's been many seasons, but I remember a season even when my first wife, Shelly, if you don't know, she died of brain cancer several years ago, even when she was alive, this was probably about 2011, 2012, and this is when I began to really dig into the story and unpack the story, and um, as Nate was talking about, and I can just remember thinking, this story that I keep believing and understanding and learning, it sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like a Disney movie. And I could not get that doubt. I mean, I can remember being in deep, deep doubt. I can remember sitting in my closet in my room. It's a big closet. Just like in deep agony. This cannot be true. I was a pastor. I was a Christian. And I kept just asking God, like, if this story is really true... it doesn't make any sense to me. I can't understand how the invisible became visible. I don't know how God can be three in one. I don't know how all this takes place. It just seems like an absolute fairy tale. And lots of us go through those seasons. And rather than being the friend who's like, hey, shape up and just believe. Come alongside people in their doubt. Be with them, pray with them, help them through their doubt because he who started the work will do what? You will be out on the boat, you'll be walking, you'll be seeing Jesus and all of a sudden out of nowhere you're drowning. But at the end of the story, you'll be worshiping. Jesus will bring you back. He will reach your hand out and bring you back. If you're doubting one that's healthy it's healthy to doubt I'm afraid of Christians who never doubt because when the storms come they don't make it but the ones who actually be honest with themselves and doubt and ask God and pray for God those are the people that at the end of the story are worshiping the son of God The second thing I want us to see here is that faith is not dependent on your strength. Faith is dependent upon its object. Tim Keller says this, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. So what is better, strong faith in a weak branch or a weak faith in a strong branch. See, the idea here is that we think we don't have this strong, robust faith. And I want to say to you, great, that's okay. The question isn't how strong your faith is. The question isn't how committed you are. The question is, what is your faith actually in? And there's lots of people who think they have a really strong faith in a very weak branch, and it is going to collapse, and they're going to fall into the sea. But there is a branch that you can just cling to, that you can be like Peter when you're drowning and just crying out like, help, and you don't have much help, you don't have much faith, you don't have much strength, and Jesus will grab you. 
Do you know there's someone who's least in the kingdom? I hate to, I mean, you're like, I don't want to be that. But you know what? You're in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. You may have the weakest faith here, and you know what? It's okay. You're in the kingdom. You belong to Jesus. The strength of your faith does not determine your rightness with God. The object of your faith determines the rightness of your God. And the problem is, is so many times the, the object of our faith is our goodness and our ability. And that's why we don't feel like we measure up. And that is religion. That is humanism. That is like the opposite of Jesus in Christianity. The distinguishing mark of Christian faith isn't the absence of doubt, but it's the object of your trust. And too many of us listen to the lies of the devil. We listen to him tell us we're not worthy, we are not good enough, we don't deserve his love. Our sinful self loves to hear this. It seems so counterintuitive. But when Satan comes and lies to you, when he says you're not good enough, when you're not worthy of his love, when you're not anything worth anything, Remember these words from Martin Luther. I love this. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the Reformation in the 1500s, said this, when the devil throws sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. Tell him, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? But I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, I will be also. You know what Martin Luther tells you to do? Tell Satan, everything you're saying to me is absolutely true. But I know Jesus. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough strength. But you know what? I know Jesus. So who is this Jesus? At the end of the story, the disciples declare him to be the Son of God. First thing I want you to notice is that in Genesis chapter 1, as the Spirit is hovering over the waters, the chaos waters, what is Jesus doing? He is hovering over the waters by walking. He is identifying himself as taking up the same role as the Spirit of God did in Genesis chapter 1, which means that this man, Jesus, is claiming to actually be God himself. Number two, when Jesus comes and identifies himself to disciples, and he talks to Peter, he says, I am, in the Greek here. Who are, Jesus says, who is it? It is me, I am. If you know anything about Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is at the burning bush and God is revealing himself to Moses for the first time and he gives the name Yahweh to Moses, what does God say? I am that I am. Jesus is claiming to actually be the Son of God. He's claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to have authority over the waters. In Mark chapter 4, in the story of Jesus calming the waters, it says this, he got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and he said, be quiet. Then catch this. He says, be muzzled. Isn't that interesting? All the English translations have like quiet, be still. But it's silence. It's be silent and be muzzled. What do you muzzle? How do you muzzle water? 
What is he muzzling? The chaos monster. The evil. The mythical creature that all these people are afraid of. Jesus says, I have authority and I am muzzling that. So church... When you keep your eyes on Jesus and you put your faith in him in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your weakness, and you push off Satan and you say, you know what, I don't care about your lies, they're all true, but I know Jesus. You actually walk on the water with Jesus. You have conquered the chaos monster. There is nothing that can actually hurt you anymore. There's nothing that can attack you and destroy you and and actually kill you. Jesus is asking you to put your faith in him because he has conquered all of the evil. And when you put your faith in him, you are walking on the water with him. So Father, help us to continue to walk on that water with you over the evil, the chaos, over the demons, over Satan and sin and death. God, I thank you that when we are starting to drown and starting to doubt, that's a good place to be. Because we know that you'll reach down, put us back in the boat, put us back on the water, and we'll worship you. So Jesus, we thank you that you are the muzzler of evil that you are restoring your kingdom in and through us to this world. So help us to walk on the water together this week so we might be a witness for your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.